and welcome to episode number 48 of the Classical Guitar Composers Podcast. As always, I am your host, Chris Hales. Glad to be bringing you the next edition of the show that features original classical guitar compositions from around the globe, sent in by you, the listener. If this is your first time joining me, you heard that right. We play your music on this show. We don't play the classics. We don't play the hits. Maybe they'll become the hits. Maybe your piece is the next hit. I can't promise you that, but what I can promise you is that you send in your composition. I played on the show, and it is heard around the world by many classical guitarists and classical guitar enthusiasts. Not a bad place to start if you're looking for an audience. So we didn't do a show last month in January, uh, and I have had a really hard time getting this one off the ground, but here we are. Hopefully I'm going to get it out by the end of the month. And it, it has been a very busy couple of months. I've been working some overtime and just trying to kind of cram in some things in the dead of winter, making it a little bit difficult to get the podcast going. But And it is the never-ending winter. Holy cow. It just will not stop snowing. And it's a good thing. I've talked about it on the show. We have been in a drought for years at this point. But, man, that doesn't make winter any more enjoyable to me. You know, I'm happy about it, but I'm still going to whine and complain because I'm tired of it. I, I want some sunshine, and I want to go play disc golf, and I want to go fishing. And uh, I mean, I guess I could start learning to ice fish, but... But I, I tend to be much more of a fair-weather person when it comes to water. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining me. I'm glad to be with you. And today I have a show for you that is what I would call probably the, the complete trilogy of having my friend Parker Robinson on as a guest. Parker's come on a few times before. And, and he's come, well, he's been on more than twice, but... but but being on to actually, as my main guest, uh, to, to discuss his knowledge of all things audio, this is the third time having him on, and the guy's moving. It's probably going to be the last time he's on, at least for quite a while. And also, there's not much more to talk about in terms of audio production relating to this show. I don't want to beat it to death, but I do... I did feel like there was some avenues left to explore. As you'll hear talked about in the interview, we talk about sound treatment today. And it's been on my mind heavily because even as I'm recording now, there is a dog next door barking like crazy. I don't know why. There's just all kinds of noise. And we kind of talk about things you can do to mitigate that a little bit. And we also talk about uh, just ways to deaden your room if you're getting some weird noise in your room um and ultimately i think the conclusion that i come to is that for classical guitar what you need more than anything is a quiet place to record as much as possible but that's not to say uh, there's not a lot of good information in this interview there there certainly is we talked for a long time i probably cut at least half of the conversation out and didn't include it in the podcast uh, because, you know, we're, we're friends and we, we talk about a lot of things. Some of it I left in, but uh, 
I did not want to give you guys a three-hour interview to listen to. <laughs> so I shortened it up significantly. And as you know, uh, Parker himself is, is a long-winded person. <laughs> and you, somehow, you sometimes have to factor that in with editing, but uh, that's okay. So I'm going to go ahead and jump straight to an email I'd like to read, and then we'll go ahead and reach into the vault and play something uh, we haven't aired in a while. I'll have some new music in next month's show, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but for today, I'll keep this part of the show concise. I hope you stick around for the interview with Parker. And before we get into that, there's just one other thing. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast? Perhaps you've got a great idea for a podcast but don't know where to begin? Or perhaps you've looked into it and became overwhelmed by all the choices. Well, if you go to Libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, and sign up using the promo code T, T-E-A, you can get up to two months of free podcasting from Libsyn. Now, when I started this podcast five years ago, I had read a book that described how to start a podcast, but the book was old. It gave a lot of good information but it also was out of date. The book was written, I don't know, in 2009, and by 2018, when I was ready to start one, much of the information was no longer relevant. And finding a podcast host proved to be a very frustrating endeavor. You know, I had gotten the idea, I liked my plan, and I, I went ahead and recorded my first episode. I had it ready to go, and then I got stuck and had a very difficult time finding a host that one made sense to me and also didn't cost a fortune and I was about to give up and I came across Libsyn and it was so simple to set up and I've used Libsyn as my podcast host from episode one so I love this company and I will tell you this just from personal experience I'm not reading copy here this is just me sharing my experience with these guys since I have signed up, which was very easy to begin with, it was very easy to get my podcast up and running, I've dealt with them a few times with their customer service, and it's excellent. They're very helpful, very responsive. They've increased the amount of audio I'm allowed to upload per month, which is huge. It means I get to put up higher quality podcasts. They did this without increasing my fees. They're just improving their service. They're constantly working to improve their service. And that's not just be, that's not a special thing for me because I've been a long-time customer. This is for everybody. They're just always making their service better. They've got an interface now that allows me to, when I'm finished recording my podcast, I get it uploaded and sent out so fast. And it's very simple. You just upload your show to the interface. It, I mean, it, it seriously consists of dragging it into a web browser. You type out whatever show notes you want, and it, they handle all that stuff for you. You can pick where you want your podcast to go. If you want it on Spotify, Apple, wherever people listen to podcasts. So I highly recommend them. And if you do sign up for Libsyn, please sign up using the promo code T, because it's a great way to help out the show. Hey, another way to get help out the show that I haven't mentioned in a while... You can always go to classicalguitarcomposers.com, click on the link that says sheet music, and you can purchase some of my own compositions in sheet music form. That is a great way to help out this show and get a little something for yourself in return. You can find the theme to this show located in the American Suite. 
Alright, moving on, I'd like to read this email from, uh, always good to hear from this guy, Martin Slater. We haven't heard from Martin in a little while. And he writes, Chris, Happy New Year. I'm afraid most of my Christmas was spent either taking cough medicine or attempting to shield folk from my subsequent explosive sneezing and runny nose. Apart from anything else, the last time my car was serviced, they did not replace the antifreeze. The consequence of this was that the water in the engine froze solid in the coldest week we have had in years, which threw me into a fearful depression, believing that it had to be ruined. The biggest relief of my current life came from the fact that it survived. I'm currently in a discussion with the servicing garage as to who should be responsible for the repair bill. I think all of this resulted in my consequent illness. Most thankfully, I am finally getting my mojo back, particularly relating to my running. I took full advantage of the one sunny day recently to cover 11 plus miles. Why, you may ask, so far? Well, I will be in the lineup for the London Marathon on the 23rd of April, having got one of those three places allocated to my club this time around. No bothering with charity, too much of a distraction. The last marathon I did was in 2005, so I have to up my training. Guitar-wise, our November meeting was the music of composers who have been members or somehow associated with our society. Consequently, rather, at the last minute, I decided to play the only piece of mine ever to find its way into print, my three-movement quest suite, which was used by our president, John Mills, erstwhile student of Segovia and lifelong friend of Bream, in a teaching series he wrote for Guitar International in January 1986. Playing my unaltered version, I was at least expecting our reviewing chairman to comment just a bit, but all I got was my name and the title of my piece. I found this disappointing and complained, something I would never normally do, but the audience that night had some quite important local musicians in it, such as Life. For future recordings, I actually have GarageBand on my MacBook Air, and I wasn't actually aware you also used Mac, so should be familiar with it. Seems all I need is a decent USB mic, then recording will never be a problem again, unless they change the system, of course. About the Villalobos etudes, it is my understanding that Julian Bream recorded these while the composer was still alive, to the point of commenting that Bream had not given them enough Brazilian feel. Nevertheless, he did purchase a load of Bream's LPs to give to his friends. I don't recall any comments about the number 10 being incomplete in any way, but I don't know which version he recorded. I have, therefore, attached Bream's recordings of 10, 7, 8, and 11 for you to discover the reality. Whichever it is, the composer found it acceptable. One last thing I forgot to mention was the fact that I had the self-same thumbnail accident half off but playing edge preserved. Uncanny. <laughs> Martin. Oh, yeah, I finally got mine back into shape. Martin and I broke the anterior recently but it's also back into shape so I'm just now back into uh, playing shape as far as fingernails go let me uh, go through these emails or excuse me let me go through these paragraphs one at a time here I think that's not cool that all they that they gave such a lackluster introduction to your piece it, it definitely uh, deserve some context and a little more I think was warranted um, as far as your mic yeah I think you can get a decent USB mic which should uh, be able to transfer into GarageBand okay 
if you wanted to go a little fancier you could you you could get um you know a fairly decent audio interface there's some pretty simple ones out there you know and that'd have a preamp in it and then and then you could choose your microphone but uh I know they exist I've just never used a USB mic so but yeah I, I definitely think that's one way to go and I, I listened to these Julian Bream recordings thank you for that and um, number 10 he plays the short version which is the one that that I had suspected was missing a page but that's just my theory but maybe so maybe there was an intentional cut there I don't know but that's what that's what Julian Bream played anyway. So Martin, it's always great to hear from you. I'm glad you're getting your mojo back and feeling better. Hopefully it stays that way. Oh, the antifreeze thing, man. That that's uh bizarre. Do you is it not typical to get freezing weather up there? I mean that that's a very egregious thing, I would say especially with what it costs to get a uh, vehicle serviced these days. I recently, I, I took my car in for an oil change, and then I was sputtering down the road after. I barely, I, I barely made it home. Uh, I, I limped home, basically. And when I opened up, they had checked the air filter. They love to check the air filter and let you know that they want to replace it. And I always politely decline, say, no, I'll replace the air filter myself when I'm good and ready. But they didn't hook the air hoses back up. They they kind of had them butted up against each other, but the air hoses in my car are kind of tricky to put on. And so that that proved to be the issue as I was limping down the road, so I, I'm not too happy about that. Uh, but your situation is even worse because there's potential damage being done, whereas for me it was just a matter of Re, uh, getting these hoses hooked up correctly so yeah I hope I hope hope all's okay with your vehicle so anyway, thank you Martin it's always great to hear from you and if you would like to email uh, any commentary on the show just go ahead and send an email to Chris at classicalguitarcomposers.com also the same address to send your piece to as well if you would like to have music featured on the show Alright, and with that, I'd like to uh, invite you to make sure your iced tea is good and full. Or maybe it is freezing where you're at, and you might be holding something a little warmer. Whatever it is you do to get in the right frame of mind to listen to some classical guitar, now's the time. And we're going to reach back into the vault. I'm going to take a piece we featured in episode 19. And this was a bit of an unusual submission, but I'm going to go ahead and re-feature it today as it's an unusual episode. And I think you'll hear what I mean, but definitely features classical guitar, which is all I ask of the pieces submitted to this show. And so this is a piece by David Malmberg, who's been featured a couple of times on this show, and this piece is called Allegories. Thank you. 
All right, that was Allegories by David Malmberg. I hope you enjoyed that. And with that, I'm going to call this a show. Once again, I'll have new music next month. And I hope you stick around for the conversation with my friend Parker Robinson talking about ways to make your home recordings better. Thank you for joining me, and until next time, keep on plucking. I didn't go with iced tea because I thought some people are going to put ice tea. Got to keep it simple. Yeah. Hard so to mess want, up three letters. It's three letters, T-E-A. Yeah. Hey, speaking of T-E-A, I got something for you, buddy. Okay. Be right back. Just to <laughs> hang out for a second. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're going to like this. <sighs> nice. No, I do. This is great. I love it. This, uh, I'm sure, works great in a audio podcast. Chris has brought in tea, iced tea for us to enjoy. We're observing the ritual. This is how we do it. Yes. Nope, I love it. Chris, you can make this an ASMR podcast. I, was, I know. I should hold this up to the mic. This tea is so what, nice. What is it that that stands for? Mmm. I have no idea what that stands for. I've looked it up like five times. Audio sensory. I'm, I'm guessing. I don't. I have no idea. Mm. Man, that's delightful. That hits the spot. Yeah. And it's kind of. It's really toasty in here. <laughs> so it, <laughs> I know what is going on in here. <laughs> I've been working with all the doors shut. Yeah. And all the gear. That's true. Kind of cooks, cooks the room. It is a lot of heat coming off these things. Yeah. I get distracted, or not not really distracted, just really focused, and I don't, I arrive like three hours later, just like deep diving on something. It's 90 degrees in here. Maybe not that hot, but it's toasty. Yeah. Let's get into it. Cool. So what I was hoping to talk to you about today is sound treatment. Okay. And pertaining to the typical listener of this show and myself, so we talk about sound treatment from two points of view often, right? We talk about sound treatment for listening and then sound treatment for recording, which is more where I want to focus. Okay. Uh, you're in here mixing a show. we got treatment all over the walls. This, this room is very tailored for you to do a mix. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily set up to, to record in. Oh, right. I mean, here we are recording in it. But, right, uh, right. I'm thinking of myself and many of the listeners who are just recording themselves on guitar. We're not doing a whole lot of mixing. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a place for that, and I, I, w- I actually would like to get into that a little bit, but more so why you would use treatment in, in a home recording setup. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I got you. Like, like, let's say a guy records his classical guitar pieces down in his basement, and he's in this room that's got like a tile floor. It's half tile half carpet you know yeah uh wood paneling walls mm-hmm. a closet what would you do like what approaches would you take to try to yeah get the highest just your quality? average your average bedroom yeah <laughs> i was just describing my office so, <laughs> but, uh, so there's a lot of different approaches you can take uh a couple things to keep in mind is the difference between kind of two concepts that are confused or seen or thought to be the same and that is the difference between sound isolation and sound treatment acoustic isolation and acoustic treatment isolation is essentially trying to keep 
the noise that you're making in and the noise that's outside of your room out, trying to make sure that the lawnmower is not heard in your recordings or kids upstairs or a washer or dryer or, you know, if you're recording at a home setup, all the things that happen at home. But, I mean, admittedly, we're in a very treated control room right now, but we share a wall with an Amazon fulfillment center, right? So, I mean, it's a thick wall, thick enough, and they blast their music, but there is translation between us, between them, right? If we're in here recording piccolo, they're definitely going to hear that piccolo. So there's uh, varying ways that you can try to circumvent that concern. One thing you could do in a home studio setup is uh, try to get as close to a, a seal around your door as possible. So, um, like, in a, if you go to a recording studio, they're going to have, like, a solid core door, solid wood, solid steel, real legit studios will have, like, doors that weigh hundreds or even thousands of pounds that create, like, an airlock. Oh, okay, so here's the disclaimer. There's a, a way to do something for $100, $1,000, dollars $100, $1, $100, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $
to try to, you know, create some type of muffled barrier. So there's a thing, there's some things you can do to kind of like try to suspend your room and isolate it from your house. That's one way. Uh, any air vents you have for your air conditioning, like if you're really, really concerned about it. And for example, if you need to turn your air conditioner off to record in the first place, just go, just go buy like dense and heavy foam. It's like six inches okay. thick mm -hmm. and cut it to be the exact dimension of your vent. And then when you, when you, if you already have to turn your air conditioner off to record, just jam it in that vent. <laughs> Right, the air conditioner is already off. You're not going to be running anything. Uh, so that's that's one thing. If you're recording in your home and you can hear your air conditioner, which you almost guaranteed can, just turn it off. It's going to stink. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the perfect. That was so amazing. Right as oh, I was saying man. that, the heater, the air conditioning kicked on, and you, I guarantee, you could probably hear that, right? So, I'm sure that yeah. There's a that's the I've recorded in here before. 100. percent That was not planned. Okay, so Chris and I have a lot of tools and sneaky <laughs> tricks to like completely remove that air conditioning sound. But for the sake of the recording, keep that in so they can hear just the difference of yeah yeah like, and and maybe that's one thing you can do too. Like, you can leave a section of this podcast that is like raw, right? No gates, no filters, no denoising. None of those things. And you can show some of the process that can be done after the fact. That's more of a mixing thing, but there's a lot you can do to get some of those tools as well. But I don't know. Do you want to kill that? We can turn that off. No, I don't. I'm not yeah, worried I mean, about it. It's going to make kind of a higher no noise floor, but for recording podcasts, I actually quit worrying about my AC. It gets in there a little bit, but if I'm recording guitar, I always turn it off. Yeah. You'll be able to filter that out, hopefully, with no problems. Yeah, I will probably... Yeah. Leave it in just for like 15 seconds so they can hear Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll leave it yeah. in for that yeah. purpose, but I'll probably EQ it out. Yeah. Know. Sure. But, I mean, here's the other thing, too. So if you if you kind of address an issue with your door and, and, you, and you address, you know, an issue with your vents, right? If you just kind of like go down the list and try to cross a couple things off, there's an approach. There's a couple approaches you can take. If you're in a small room... What that likely means, you're probably doing just fine because you're mostly recording like acoustic guitars, which at their loudest dynamics are not enough to interact with your room in a way that is like really noticeable or problematic. But I, I'm a saxophone player myself. If I were recording like my saxophone in your room, almost guaranteed to have problems just because the saxophone is yeah. There's gonna much, be a reflection much, much coming back. Yeah. So, yeah. when in doubt, the approach on, like, treating a small room would be to try to make it as dead as you can. The hard part is, if you're trying to make your room as dead as possible, meaning you're, you're removing reflections with acoustic treatment on your walls and your ceiling and your floor, it kind of chokes out some of the life of the room, and you have to then potentially recreate some of that after the fact. So if you're not in a position where you feel like you can, want to, need to do post-processing and mixing, the best thing you can do is find a really good sounding room. So there's one approach of like have a dedicated space in your house that you treat and you, you seal it up as much as you can. And the other one is find a good sounding room that you like and have like a portable setup and go record in that room. 
And that's an approach, too. If you find a more lively room that you like that's big enough that's not going to have that type of room interaction that you don't like, then uh, that that's going to make a huge difference. The hard part when you're in a home studio environment is that in a professional studio environment, the best decision you can make is getting it sounding as good as it can on capture. So room, microphone choice, gain staging, all of those things make bigger differences than post-processing or mixing decisions. So if you know your room and you know what you want and you tackle some of these problems, for example, if you're recording in a small room, if you just had even two panels that are in your corner, right, kind of at a 90-degree angle, like on the walls in a corner, and you put your microphone in that corner facing out into the room, and you sit kind of in the middle of the room or close to that microphone facing the corner, what you're doing is in a, with, with a, a common condenser microphone that's like in a cardioid pattern. We've talked about that, I think, on a previous podcast. But just assume that the microphone you're using, if it's a budget microphone, is, is going to operate in this way. What you're doing is you're having the microphone face you. So there's, there's a front face and a back face of the microphone. The front face is obviously designed to capture what's in front of it. But those microphones are also designed so that they reject the thing that's behind them. And it's not perfect and it's not completely, uh, completely doable. But that's not how that really necessarily works. But if you had two panels that are kind of absorbing reflections in the corner of a room and the back part of the microphone that's meant to be rejecting is facing that, you're favoring the front of that microphone, which is pointed directly at you, and you're eliminating or trying to eliminate the two biggest problematic areas, which are the points of first reflection, which are the nearest wall between the microphone and you. And if you are if you're stick your arms out straight out to your side, those are usually the walls that are the problematic ones because you're going to get – audio isn't – as directional as you think, um, kind of projects in all directions. So I'm talking to you now, we're facing each other. You're getting direct from me, but then you're also getting a reflection of me on all the walls in the room and they all bounce around. So a couple things in terms of acoustic treatment that you want to look into, but be wary of, will dispel some myths. If you go on YouTube, if you go on Google, you find every conceivable option that someone will have tried that they swear by. Okay, so uh, you may have seen or heard people putting up like egg cartons on their wall. Um, and the idea behind that is that they're going to say some of that's absorption, some of that's what's called diffusion, which is it's scattering the reflection into a bunch of different directions. The, the truthfulness of that is is it's certainly doing something differently than like just a, a flat drywall but one of the biggest principles with acoustic treatment that oftentimes gets missed is that it's not just about having it it's not just about having a whole bunch of treatment it's about having the right kind of acoustic treatment so there's a way to spend a lot of money and time and effort on the wrong kind of treatment and have it not be effective and not only not be effective have it make have it cause other problems for example kind of the biggest one to be aware of is uh, like foam panels, RLX foam panels. This is not a diss at all on RLX or foam panels, but um, the thing to take into account is that like a two-inch thick RLX foam acoustic panel, you're going to see those all over the place or, or something competitive to it, whether it's RLX or a different company. 
um, those stapled on a wall or 3M to a wall, are they are effective, but they're not effective at doing everything. So human hearing extends from like 20 hertz. They say 20 hertz up to 20,000. And people really can't hear that low or that high. You're, you're, you're the average person. Your hearing starts to roll off in like the 16 to 17-ish range. And as you get older, it actually gets worse. That'll go down. So your speaking voice, like the reason they call it A440 when you're tuning is because that's 440 hertz, mm-hmm. right? And hertz is how many cycles the, the waveform terminates in one second. So if you think about it, A440 is in singable range. So what is like speakable range? It's going to be around there, below, higher than that. RLX foam is not designed from a physics principle to really attenuate frequencies evenly lower than like a thousand hertz. So if you throw up a whole bunch of RLX foam, you're going to have a ton of treatment but it's not going to be... It's not really doing anything. Yeah, it's doing a lot. To, well, I mean, to what? To the frequencies that you're putting out. Though. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's whether a, you're playing an instrument or speaking or singing. Now, this is where this is awesome. If you're if you're going to like... if So we're in, a, we're in a mixing environment, as you talked about before. Mm-hmm. This room is great as a mixing environment, but it's maybe not ideal as a recording environment for voices. For us right now, we would want it deader. We'd want it more dead. Right. Um, you'd want it probably tighter, more compact, super dead, just to like suck out any reflection so you can get like a, a broadcaster style voice. Yeah, very um, dry, mm-hmm. very close. Yeah. And very isolated is your typical speaking. Yep. Now, I haven't pursued that too much at home. Yeah. I've kind of just been like, you know, it is what it is. No, yeah. And but, much of but it we is. We are talking about yeah, we're, how to make things better. Yeah, so what I what I'm saying is that you you could you could go buy RLX panels. You you totally could. Mm-hmm. And you could buy a whole bunch of them. You could treat the floor, the ceiling, the walls, you could do all that and you'd make your space really really dead. And it would sound cool for some things, right? It'd be a good environment for like voiceover. Voiceover booths are like small, compact and as dead as possible. And you know, you really want to be like right on the microphone and you know, mm-hmm. like <clears throat> it's just a different if it's different styles, different principle. It's it's catered in a different way. So, like in our huge room out there, we've just recorded a vocalist singing. We have a we have a gigantic studio space, high ceiling, large room. But for the sound we need, I had her hug up right on the microphone. I used some baffles to kind of surround that microphone, and it was really close, right? Mm-hmm. So, I'm specifically making choices to address not wanting the room to play. Yeah. a role or be characteristic. So what do you do instead of using RLX? And and maybe what do you do in addition to RLX? And it's not to say that it's not a good product. It's just maybe not understood to be like as full spectrum as you would hope. For example, in a, in a professional studio space, they're using a variety of products, uh, but oftentimes you'll see uh, panels that are made out of uh, rigid fiberglass insulation. Specifically, there, there's stuff designed uh, uh, for acoustics. Uh, it's called like Owens Corning, Owens Corning 703, for example, is is one. There's there's another that's sometimes they use Owens Corning 705. Sometimes they use Roxel. Sometimes they use you know 
safe and sound. There's a whole bunch of products, but the idea is that these are idea ideal for audio because they attenuate frequencies evenly across a larger spectrum. For example, <clears throat> like uh, a two-inch thick Owens Corning panel directly on the wall can be absorptive down to like 250 hertz, right? Okay. So the difference between an Owens Corning panel and and some of this is variable, right? For example, if you have a two-inch panel that's a two has it is a, is like a two-inch gap off the wall, you extend the frequencies it attenuates evenly down into the 200 range, the 150 range. And this is variable. It depends on the space, depends on a lot of things. Um, but the idea here is that um, the difference between attenuating frequencies at 250 hertz versus 1,000 is huge because the way that those frequencies compound is every time you go up an octave, those frequencies double. So how many octaves are there between 0 and 1,000 hertz versus 1,000 and 20,000 hertz? Mm -hmm. There's way more. Almost all the operating frequencies that are like fundamental frequencies are below 1,000. So that's why it's important to have acoustic treatment. Like it's, it's better for you to have four panels of Owens Corning than every wall covered in RLX. So you could spend $1,000 in RLX foam or you could spend $200 to build your own acoustic panels. Now, again, we're talking in a situation where we're trying to eliminate the sound of the room from yep. interfering with the recording or, or joining yeah. the recording. So can we go back to that microphone in the corner with two panels? Mm -hmm. Okay, so your guitar is facing this corner, microphone's facing the guitar. Mm hmm and the panels are behind the microphone. Yeah. And you're saying, so that's the first point of reflection because that is the direction of the sound? Yeah, that... you're, you're, you're trying to remove the microphone's ability to capture reflections better than it captures initial sound, or you're trying to reduce those. So don't necessarily think about it as, as specifically, you know, as, there's no way to remove or reduce those things completely. So it's a, it's more about focusing the sound of the guitar. Seriously, amazing. I guess we'll take a break. Parker, uh, I don't even know where we were at before we got interrupted. We're, ta we're talking about this. We're talking about this corner. Oh yeah, this, this corner. This corner method. So here here's here's the real uh, the truth. Like in this technique, the idea is that you're trying to make the walls that are directly close to the microphone absorptive, pretty dead, right? So. Um, what you want is to have the microphone in position to capture your guitar and then be removed as much as possible from a whole bunch of bouncing frequencies flying around the room. For example, if you put that same microphone in the very middle of the room and you play your guitar into it, you're going to get the directional sound of the guitar, but you're also going to get the reflection of that guitar off every single wall in that room. And when you're initially recording, and it might, you know, feel pretty comfortable, but what oftentimes happens is when you start to, like, increase the level, maybe you're adding compression, or maybe you're just uploading it to YouTube, and YouTube does loudness normalization on its own. Once that starts to happen, 
then you start to hear the characteristics of the room a little bit more. So, like, if your room is big enough and that microphone is in the middle of the room and you're recording something like guitar, you might not have any problems with that at all, right? But if your room is really, really small and your microphone's right in the middle, you run the risk of capturing reflections from every single wall. What's interesting is that every space behaves differently. So I think I probably should have like led with this at the very, very, very beginning. Experimentation is key. Like I've heard the recordings that you make at your house, and I know what gear you're using. And folks, I can tell you that Chris is able to get really great recordings in a really tiny room with with budget microphones because he knows his guitar, he knows his equipment, he knows his room, he knows his preamps. Those things all come with just time. You'll be better served experimenting, right? Stick a microphone in a corner, hear how it sounds. Stick it in the middle of the room, hear how it sounds. Stick it in a closet. You know, yeah, put and, you in the corner and the microphone in the middle of the room. Mm-hmm. Because recording something even like how how it's interesting. Six inches away from a microphone sounds a lot different than 18 inches away from a microphone, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a huge difference in terms of, you know, how much, how loud you're able to get into the microphone. But you might need some, you know, kind of cool, vibey, folksy guitar where being that six inches on it is like just what it needs, right? But you may need to back off a little bit if you're doing something more Baroque and you need you need more of the projection of the instrument and less of the picking of the instrument and the playing of the instrument. And so there's a sweet spot in every room. There is. And with guitar specifically, um, just as you were saying, when you are mic'd six inches away, uh, which sometimes you're forced to do, you might be forced Mm -hmm. to do based on your environment and your microphone. In my case, that's how I used to record. I had a dynamic microphone and... Probably, would, probably the only way you could get the level that you needed was to be pretty close on it. Yes, you had to be close to get the level, and then what you ended up with was very loud ratios of, like, your finger noises to uh, note yeah, audio. Like you tone. know, like Yes. Yeah. And so <clears throat> backing off to, say, eight, I'd say 18 inches is probably my typical... Mm-hmm. That's kind of the sweet spot in my room with my mics. I've, I've switched microphones recently. I've, I've switched from using something like we're talking into right now, that's what I used to record with, to doing a matched pair of those Lewitt uh, oh, condensers. Oh, the, the, the 040 match, those yes. tiny little mozzarella stick-looking mm-hmm. microphones. I, oh, I love got those you. things. And that's because yeah. I, I wanted to start recording in stereo, Yeah, which I have really liked the results of. Nice. But anyway, so I if you can do it, that is a sweet spot as far as the projection of your instrument, I think. I would agree, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I mean by there's, there's like a sweet spot in every room mm-hmm. where you want to be, you know, you want to you, you want to be, like if you want to be, if you're in a room that's so small or really projecting, like is, is like a tiled room or a bathroom or something, which... Sometimes you are. Backing off 18 inches to two feet means you're going to hear a lot of that room. And guess what? Sometimes you might want to hear the sound of the room. I mean, honestly, there there really isn't anything wrong with hearing the room in the recording. 
so long as it serves the piece of music well, right? And if the room is noisy, you're going to have problems. But if you're in a neutral sounding room or you're recording at three in the morning when it's nice and quiet, like every room, every environment kind of has to have some like some tender loving care approach to it. I, I feel like this is a philo- philosophical thing that there's so much information you like YouTube channels, influencers, books, Reddit pages that will all give really stark and intense decisions or, or, or opinions on how to do something. But I think what's missing is that like, the people who are really successful at every level, I think it's because they take an approach of specific problem solving to whatever they're working on. So what what definitely worked on one thing might not work on another thing. And, and maybe, you know, once you dial in the tone that you want in your room, maybe that is the exact thing that you use every time. But the point is that you can't come to that decision until you go experiment a whole ton with it. People's first impulse, I worry, is they go, okay, I need I need an audio interface with 20 inputs. You don't. Or I need a two-input audio interface that has the highest fidelity preamp, the absolute best converters you can possibly imagine, and, you know, and I will spend thousands of dollars on that, and then I'll buy a $10,000 microphone and... All those things. And I'll have a, maybe you have a $10,000 instrument. All those things, right? Mm -hmm. You set it up and don't get what you want because so much of the choices about where you put it, how you play, those are huge. Those are huge things. And so someone, I I would guess, and I would bet, this is my experience, someone who knows their gear, knows their room, knows their equipment inside inside out, and knows what they want and is willing to experiment and go find that sound will almost always get a better result from someone who isn't going through that process and just assuming that having the best stuff works. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about RLX panels. We've talked about Owens Corning panels. For example, like you can buy a, a, a pre-cut two-foot-by-four-foot, two-inch thick piece of Owens Corning. You can, buy a, you can buy a pack of six of them on Amazon for like $200. So that would be six two-foot-by-four-foot panels. When I built my panels, I did two four-foot-by-four-foot and four two-foot-by-four-foot panels. I I framed them in wood that I got at Home Depot that was cheap, and I wrapped them in burlap. So I built eight panels, um, and I I built the frame so that they could be two inches off the wall, and I mounted them with 3M hooks because they're not that heavy because I was in a townhouse at the time and didn't want to drill a whole bunch of holes. But that was easily... We're talking like maybe $600 for those panels. That might seem steep, and I totally get that. But if you were to sp- you could spend that same amount on RLX foam and have worse results, right? Or, mm-hmm. I mean, again, barring experimentation. But there's so many other options that are great, too. You can go buy moving blankets at Home Depot that can kill a whole bunch of, like, sizzly reflections in your room. And maybe that's all you need. Maybe you want as much dark, rich tone in your room, and you specifically want to kill high-frequency ringing in your room or flutter echo in your room. And, like, moving blanks and RLX foam do exactly that. The point I'm making is that, um, like, the approach of, like, go get an acoustics degree so you know exactly how all the 
like physics of your room are working versus take the same exact piece and record it in 10 different places in your room and find the one that sounds really great to you. One of them's way cheaper, way cheaper and way easier and way better. Yeah. It's way more objective. Is there any uh, use for bass trapping for recording in a small space like this? It depends. It depends on what you're recording, and it depends on how you're defining, like, bass trapping and bass frequencies. Um, like, um, yeah, the, the the idea, what what differentiates, I'm using quotes, like, bass frequencies, essentially, is <clears throat> imagine, like, the waveform that we've talked about, right? I think anyone who is listening hopefully will know what we're talking about just imagine like a picture of an audio file and you see this wavy line right or wavy lines peaks and valleys right mm -hmm. um those waveforms are representative of of you know how many cycles per second is being completed that's how many frequencies long story short the lower you go in the frequency spectrum the larger the waveforms are and because they're larger, it means that they build up in your room in ways that smaller frequencies don't. They hit a wall or a ceiling way sooner in their termination. And so they end up bouncing around in your room a lot more, and they end up collecting or, or bunching up in the corners. Now, the reason this is important is also as you go lower in the frequency spectrum, the audio, the, those frequencies become less directional. They become what's called audio directional. So if you're, like, for example, imagine a piccolo is like a laser beam. The waveform is really, really small, mm -hmm. right? I, in my mind, I'm thinking, like, the waveform is, like, three inches tall, right? And it goes a, <laughs> yeah. it goes a gajillion of them a second. Well, and you it can point it like your man, it feels like it is. Exactly. Full you, impact, the entire waveform is the size of your ear canal. Yep. Like... And you can point it and feel like it's being shot like a gun, yeah. right? So imagine, like, that's why um, five piccolo players in a marching band are going to, like, totally wallop how loud 15 tubas are going to sound. And the reason for that is that imagine that, like, this piccolo is something that you can shoot out of a gun. It's very directional. It obviously behaves like normal acoustics do. It has reflection points. It has those things. But it's not being impeded during its waveform by any surface, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine like a low instrument, instead of being very directional like an arrow or a gun or a laser beam, imagine the waveform is, I think... It's tall, it's wide. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you, when you get down into like low frequencies, 60 hertz, 50 hertz, that's where you're going to see and feel like kick drum, um, bass guitar, even lower than that. Really like dancey sub frequencies that'll like blow the roof off your house. That's like in the 20 ish to 30 ish hertz range. Those waveforms are massive. Like when you get that load, they take like 50 feet to completely terminate one cycle. So if you're in a room and you're trying to generate frequencies that low, in its up curve before it even completes, it's gonna hit a wall, it's gonna hit a wall, it's gonna hit a wall, it's gonna, hit a wall, it's gonna bounce. Tons and tons of time. So it, 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 first, it depends on what you're recording. Um, but uh, for the most part, 
you're probably better served trying to address mid to high mid frequency mm-hmm. um there there's a lot of like the other thing that's kind of cost prohibitive about base frequency uh, attenuation is that it's a lot harder to do it takes way more material to absorb the energy of base frequencies oh and then the other thing so imagine a base frequency is like a water balloon that like hits the sidewalk and the way that the water splashes out in all directions, that's how base frequencies work. So you got a piccolo that's like a laser beam, and you're just, just like, bam, blasting someone's eye out, you know, 150 yards away. Base frequencies, a water balloon that splash out, like, in all directions. And so you could imagine that in a room where that's going out in all directions, the energy is dispersing equally in all directions. Because it's not even necessarily to say that it has more energy than... The piccolo is just directional in different ways. So now you have that bass frequency hitting like kind of all the walls all at the same time. If you're recording acoustic guitar, if you're recording an an acoustic instrument or like a woodwind instrument, like a clarinet or an oboe or a bassoon or something like that, those are kind of the sweet spots for like having the room be less characteristic. If you're a trumpet player and you're blasting in a small room, Right, you're gonna hear that flying around all over the room, um, but bass frequency attenuation in those cases are gonna be less effective. But the right. beautiful part about bass trapping is that it's still a panel. Like, yeah, I guess uh, the reason I ask is because I don't know how high of a frequency that addresses, but I know guitars can often get quite muddy in recordings, acoustic guitars. Yeah, you know okay. what I mean. Mm-hmm. But that may not necessarily be room interaction as much as it's just miking. Miking techniques. You know. So, so uh, for example, we record Chris here quite often uh, for the product that we make. And some of this is very characteristic to Chris's instrument, also the way that we're miking. We record with a matched pair of small diaphragm condenser microphones. We we usually space them about this, like, it's it's not even really all that scientific. It's about the width of my head. I like to hear it how I hear it in the room. They're kind of the width of my head. They're pointed directly. It's called a space pair You'll technique. Have them, um, so from my point of view, it, it's like he's got one pointed pretty much at the sound hole and one pointed at the neck. Like 12th fret, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Not not far up the neck, but yeah. The idea the idea is that But they're but you'll you'll angle the mics so that they match the angle of my guitar. So, for example, we're playing classical guitar, right? I've got a a leg rest. A lot of people use a foot rest, but I have that elevated neck, basically. And so you have one microphone lower than the other. It's matching the plane of my neck. Yeah. And the the reason that, we're, that I'm using this technique for our recordings here is that more than anything, and and... I want an acoustic guitar in a recording to sound like I'm sitting right there listening to the player play it. So we're backed off, you know, sometimes two, two and a half, sometimes even three feet. And we're able to do that because we have a pretty neutral sounding room. You may not be able to get away with that depending on your room. And we have a huge room, so we're not really catching any reflections. The point I'm making, though, is that less than even just the room, your instrument tends to be, in in, in our recordings, very, very dark and like woody mm-hmm. and rich on its own sounds really really nice 
in a mix, it's difficult because it's eating up a ton of space that other instruments need to. And so I find myself in, in the process of mixing, rolling some of that low frequency stuff out. But the interesting is the stuff that I'm pulling out is in like the 150 to the 250 hertz like range. And bass trapping, it, that's kind of the ceiling it's kind of like the crossover point of what you'd consider mid-range into low-frequency stuff. The good news with bass trapping is that, like, imagine bass trapping is just a really, really thick panel. For example, we've talked about a 2-inch thick Owens Corning panel. 4-inch mm -hmm. thick is even better. 4-inch thick Owens Corning panel is what a lot of acoustic companies consider bass treatment. They usually don't call it a bass trap. But they'll call it bass treatment. And then once you get into like seven to eight inches thick, they call it bass trapping. But these corner traps we have in this room are 18 inches thick. And I wish they were five feet thick because it just takes that much to mm -hmm. really grab and hold on to bass frequencies. But the benefit is it's still a panel and it's still absorbing. If it's, if it's able to extend down into the low, it's also, these, these panels are not only addressing low frequencies. They're addressing down to those frequencies, but they're also addressing every frequency all the way up. So, you know, if, to answer your question, like, this is serving both as bass trapping, but also as just a normal functional acoustic treatment, because it's also able to capture and attenuate everything that's higher above it. Mm -hmm. So... Bass trap, bass paneling is not ideally the target for yeah, guitar I mean, recording. I mean, there always, can be some benefit. Yeah, but, I'm but, always going to advocate for it. You will get better recordings, but it's it's arguably lower on the list. We're talking, yeah, like yeah. kind of wisely. Let me ask you about this one. So you mentioned the Home Depot mm -hmm. moving blankets. Yeah. Someone once told me, if I remember this correctly, this was a long time ago before I knew pretty much anything about recording. Mm -hmm. um, but he was saying... With a microphone, if I remember this right, it could be wrong, but the microphone pointed at you, you're facing the mic, and behind you is a blanket yeah, hanging mm -hmm. from, like, the ceiling. So you've created, like, this partition behind you. Mm -hmm. What is the logic to that? Is that a valid thing yeah. to do? No, I mean, it, totally. So, like, let's take our other example where we've got, like, those panels in the corner and the microphone in the corner, mm -hmm. right? Like, essentially what, what he's talking about is by putting up those blankets he's trying to deaden the space behind you and so any because if you think about it if, if the microphone is facing you it's also facing the walls that are behind you mm -hmm. so imagine you know a square room but then just rotate it so now think of it as a diamond right yeah so let's corner say, to corner yep, we're looking so so top to bottom you got a corner bottom you got a corner uh, I like the idea of recording kind of in that way where you've got microphone in one place, player in another place, maybe even in the middle of the room. But the idea is that the microphone is not facing a flat wall. The microphone is yeah. facing two walls that, that, is, that are like this. That is my method at home. Yep. I do. I sit in the middle of the room facing the corner. And the reason for that is just, just uh, uh, in the same way that we've had the analogy of like the piccolo is like a laser beam. Like imagine freak, like audio behaving in a way where like if you're talking directly into a wall it's absolutely bouncing off that wall back into the rest of the room so in this case with him throwing up that blanket behind you 
he's addressing the fact that the microphone is facing you and it's also facing that wall. And so it's hearing mm-hmm. it's hearing a direct sound from your guitar being played. It's hearing also the reflection of your guitar in the wall behind it's the microphone. Like the second reflection. Yep. So and it's, it's also catching a third reflection, which is from your guitar off of a one wall onto another wall. And recording diagonally just means you're giving more of these geometric walls that it has to bounce off of before it has a direct path to the microphone. Mm-hmm. And like the more you can kind of do some of that kind of odd experimentation, the more you can kind of suck out and eliminate the sound of your room. So that's probably like the cheapest thing you could address right away. Yeah. It's just hang a blanket. For sure. It doesn't have to be a moving blanket. I was just going to say, yeah, like any blanket is going to do something. You know, like this is the thing that kind of gets laughed at, but like home home producers, especially in hip-hop, would use mattresses. You yeah, use a I've mattress. Heard of the mattress. And the reason for that is just like yeah. a thick absorptive yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. You talk about furniture like couches. Couches are hailed as base treatment, base trapping. It's mainly just like a thick obstacle that the audio will pass through but has to like it, it's it's essentially dispersing energy. When we talk about absorption, don't imagine like these frequencies like going into this panel and just dying. Some of them do that, and 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 depending on, and that's essentially the 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 higher frequency, the better those thinner panels are at it. Think of it more of like sending your audio through mud. You're trying to slow it down. You're trying to like cake it in something that'll make it so it can run slower, or you know, yeah. <laughs> the the bass trapping is like your audio source is like a linebacker, and you're having him just like run through a swamp and you're hoping that he gets like up to his waist and can't move anymore. And that means your, your base trap is thick enough to where he just like sinks in the mud and can't go anywhere once he runs through it. Yeah. I, I was just thinking here of like, uh, I've had like a hose, like my garden hose mm-hmm. with like the jet. There's your piccolo, right? Yep. Like, and I spray that into the wall. It's like, I'm getting completely wet, right? Mm-hmm. Sp- spray it into the Owens Corning. Less wet. Yeah. But it's still going to reach the wall, yep. but it's going to be dispersed, get there slower. Yep. And then you get like a fire hose, and that's maybe something more like our base <laughs> where you're, I don't know if that's quite the best analogy because it's, you'd still have the high pressure of the fire hose. Yeah. But yeah, I understand the analogy of the mud, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's so, yeah, it. I mean, that's, that's the idea. A, I think that's um, probably pretty useful stuff to somebody wanting to. You know, I'm always interested in how to make recordings. I have access to some really neat recording spaces, obviously. And, in fact, we'll be moving into a much nicer facility. Like, we're about to, you know, really upgrade our studio here. But I still record at home. Yeah. But most people wouldn't have that access, right? Like, I'm thinking about the dude who's just like, I don't care, man. I just want to, like, record this piece I wrote so people can hear it. But I also want it to sound good. Yeah, you know, I uh, so I was in a band once upon a time, <laughs> and we knew nothing about recording. We could play, but that was it. Right. <laughs> and uh, we recorded a handful of songs, and if I remember correctly, like we stuck a microphone in the middle of the room. We were in each corner of the room, and we just did our thing. 
and this microphone got blasted from all sides and uh <laughs> you know yeah it was a functional recording as far as like you, you could hear yeah the music you could hear everybody there was no mix right there was no mix control right <laughs> but uh it did not make for like you'd stick it in your cd player I, I suspect a lot of people didn't want to listen to it because it just didn't sound good. They might be like, oh, yeah, I kind of like the song or whatever, but, you know. Yeah, I hear you. And uh, I imagine I'm not the only person who's been like that at some point in life, right? Like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. I want it to sound half decent. I don't need to spend, you know, several thousand dollars in studio time. Yeah. When I just want to, like, sell my piece, or even not selling it, right? But just, yeah. like, I want to upload it. I want to send it to like family, whatever. Yeah. Whatever you're doing with it. For sure. I think this is a useful, you know, some simple things they can do. All right. Well, we just took us a little break here, but I think we uh, we covered kind of what I was wanting to talk about. Cool. You know, as you may or may not know, Parker, on the show, I kind of talk a little bit of guitar, a little bit of life, and listen to a little bit of music. Cool. So, should we talk about a little bit of life? Yeah, sure. Um... I want to talk to you about a movie I've recently seen. Okay. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about it. But uh, The other night, my wife's parents took us to dinner. It was, it was real nice. A uh, little treat. Went and had some great Mexican food. And then with about, I don't know, it's getting kind of late. I'm like thinking I'm going to go home and turn in for the night. And her stepmom is like, so uh, you guys want to go to a movie? <laughs> And I was honestly, I was like, not really, <laughs> but I didn't want to be rude. And I was like, uh, I guess. Yeah. She's like, have you seen the Elvis movie? And I said, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and I have no, I, I'm actually, I've always been pretty fond of Elvis's music. Right. I'm not so much averse to seeing the, the movie itself, but uh, I knew it had a long running time, which I struggle with. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not a long movie kind of guy. And then I'm also like, yeah, I like Elvis. I like movies in general, but I often will pass on a movie. Like, I'm not... Right. As much as I've talked about movies on this show, <laughs> especially horror movies, people might think I watch a lot of movies. I actually don't. You know your lane, right? Huh? You know what you like. You know your lane. I do. Yeah. Well, and I often, like... We'll see a movie preview, and I think I'll probably like that movie if anyone can ever get me to watch it. But I, there's no way I'm doing it on my own. That's how I felt about Elvis. Anyway, okay. But I just I don't know. They were offered. They'd just taken us out to dinner, and we're offered a movie. It's kind of hard to turn down someone being so nice to you, right? Mm -hmm. So we went to Elvis, dude. I loved it. Nice. I, I walked out of that theater, and I was like, <clears throat> "Hey, thanks, you guys," because I would have never watched that on my own. Yeah. And I pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, I I had a couple of things I didn't like about it. One being the length. I thought it was too long. Mm. But even being too long, it was really good and kept my attention the whole time. I got another thing. Uh, I know you, I believe we talked a little bit about this. Mm. But I wanted to get into it deeper, but we both just not into Tom Hanks, right? Like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a couple things that are like stand out to me about that movie that, like, immediately comes to my mind when I think about it. I feel the same way. I really liked it. Yeah. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think Andrew Butler is awesome in that role. I think he did a great job. I admittedly don't have a huge 
like running knowledge of Elvis or his discography. I, I know being an avid music fan and like having tons of diversity in what I listen to generally, I have listened to a lot of Elvis, but not really privy to the history. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know necessarily even how accurate the portrayal was in the movie, but there's a there's some things that I really thought were exceptionally cool. And that, to me, some of them are like music nerd stuff, some of them's audio nerd stuff. Like I think what they did with a lot of the montages of his music uh, and the way that they're kind of Frankenstein them in and out Oh, super, super creative. I thought the music editor was fantastic. Yeah. Whoever did that did a really good job. Yeah, like to me, that's a really great example of how to how to use like immersive elements of movie making to incorporate all of those like yeah, aspects yeah. of Elvis music. That Some of them are done kind of removed from like there 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 are songs in the in the in the movie that are recorded in like a really high fidelity modern way to bridge the gap with it being like in his earlier music so that it fits in like mm-hmm. so you get like versions of his music 20 yeah, yeah, yeah. years previous that vibe really well with when they're trying to like show him in the 70s mm-hmm. you know and and like all of that landed so well with me i me i too. thought that was like really really enjoyable super cool one of my favorite elements of the movie is is just the bob and weave of all of that well i i so what i loved about it is the way it's carried by the music Mm -hmm. it's story driven but the story is driven by the music the story itself and i i haven't seen every like musician biopic but i loved the stylized nature of this movie and my favorite moment i thought was just musically brilliant was when uh, he does his first show in Vegas. And they do that Strauss piece. I can't even remember the name of it. But, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's Ric Flair's intro, man. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, high drama. Yeah, high drama, the curtain up. And then they transition that into, like, the most dramatic moment of the American trilogy, his song American Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Or not his song, but, you know. Yeah. He's out, glory, glory, hell. You yeah. know, and I was just like, it gave me chills, man. Yeah. And I was like, this is so cool. It just was so well done. They they picked the best parts of the songs to suit the moment in the movie. It was really cool. And with the liberties they took, which, truth be told, I didn't know what was liberties and what wasn't. I did some reading up afterward just out of curiosity. you know. Yeah. But they definitely took some liberties. But I was like, I'm okay with this. I, it made for a compelling movie. Yeah. So I think you make the best point. With why I think this biopic ends up, I think standing out as a better biopic than others is that like the driving force behind it is his music, his performance of that music. But then the whole backdrop and like soundtrack of the movie is also a love letter like to his music. Where yeah, yeah. in other biopics, there's a couple of choices there I didn't like. <laughs> like what? Oh, okay. Well,. <laughs> For example, I I, you're, you're I, I going don't know along. That I disagree. I don't know you're that I disagree. You're going along, and um, well, it's very classic music, okay? Mm-hmm. And I would not say Elvis's music is timeless. It's very set in the periods it was in, but yeah, um, it has you, some immediate so nostalgia associated with it. Yeah, yeah. But you're going along, and all of a sudden, you have this moan singer <laughs> comes in, and she's just like, 
Why, man? And I was like, get that out of here. Well, that's very get that out of here. That's very popular now. Yeah, I know. It's like a huge I thing. Didn't like that. Every like There's... dramatic-esque movie has to have some kind of cover with like that whispery, whispery, intense, yeah, yeah. like vocal over it. Turns take any song and just make it really haunting. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, have a girl whisper it. So here's um, the thing. I, I admittedly, I'm a sucker for that. But, no way. but, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. But, but the one in this movie. Oh, okay. Not even the one in this movie. Those things. Uh, okay. I like those in that when they happen, I go like, oh, this is like a really interesting take on this song. But it's almost always something I never have recall about. So I guess the best way to describe it is that, like, there is an immediate gratification that happens when I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> and then it's gone, like, out of my brain. I don't even think about it. Like, I can't even remember what part of the movie that is in. I'm sure it's in the trailer. I don't remember what part it is. But, but I, it... I typically fall for stuff like yeah. that. When that stuff happens, well, I go like, ooh. It's movie trailer 101 these days, right? Yeah, no, but this it, is in the yeah. movie itself, which yeah. is a bit jarring. But also, yeah, there's, I mean... <laughs> And, you know, there's all the Bill Street scenes uh, was really cool. There's so much awesome. I mean, it's the origins of rock and roll you're seeing. And all of a sudden, it's hip hop. And it just, it felt shoved into me. I I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's it's like removing itself from the authenticity of what it's portraying on screen and, and like kind of circumventing that and like throwing an elbow into the expectation there a little jarring i mean granted i i admit i just don't like hip-hop it just has never moved me but um but i would understand if we were watching you know scenes from the street in the 80s or the 90s yeah i got you but we're we're in the 50s here yeah I, i guess i interpreted that as invoking like giving a pretty not even a subtle like a not even a wink but like let's connect the dot to yeah, like he, I, I get I'm gonna, it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop this in <laughs> like a sound editor dropping that in saying this is an invoking a tone so if you're struggling to know how to feel this is how I want you to feel right where it's like more modern and that's yeah. I think very also like a pretty common modern-y type thing where it's like you go to a movie and there are some parts of it that are like we're just gonna tell you how we think you should feel right now, right? <laughs> we're just gonna, sh- we're just like, we're gonna be very explicit and just show you exactly how. Yeah, but again, yeah. at that moment, like for me, are you I, saying it's for I, the kids? Is that what you're saying? I think it's for the kids. I think I think it's for the kids. How do you make How do you make a Zoomer right now want to watch a movie about right. Elvis Presley? They're like, who this, isn't already into Andrew this movie's Butler. getting a little bit hokey. Uh, give me yeah. some rap. Oh, what the, the moment that I think I knew I was really gonna like the movie is we'll get into Tom Hanks in a second. But <laughs> it's when Tom Hanks first goes and sees Elvis. Oh, that was such a great do, sequence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where like Elvis is in the pink he's in the pink uh-huh. suit and he does that whole performance where you only ever see the back it's of elu- his yeah, head. Yeah, it's so elusive. And yep. you you hear the music like filtered as if it's backstage, but then it's hitting these really ethereal, like dreamlike reverbs. And so it does not in any way represent how the audience would be hearing it, how Elvis would be hearing it, how you watching a movie would be hearing it. It's like, it's this really, really clever way of making it seem very specific to Tom Hanks' character, mm-hmm. but also 
ethereal and like almost magical, like well, entrancing. If like, I remember right, that music in that moment or that whole sequence, because it's, it's, it's probably what three minutes of movie there yeah. it, it, mm-hmm. of Tom Hanks trying to get. He's heard about Elvis. He's trying to get a glimpse of this guy, and he just can't quite, you know. And so it it has this teasing aspect for you as the watcher too, like. But that music is very driven. I, I, I remember it's just like, tick, tick, tick. Yeah. it's like a freight train that just it's, yeah, you know. And uh, the payoff is incredible. Yeah, it's just see that's that's really great. Really well done stuff from the trailer and from the way they just start the movie. Like you just know that like. Tom Hanks. I can't remember even the character that Tom Hanks is playing. Uh, uh, Colonel. The Colonel. Colonel. Yeah. He's Elvis's um, manager. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tom Hanks plays Elvis's manager. Like you know, and on no, in no uncertain terms, that this guy is sleazy and kind of scammy. It's like you get that vibe from him in every. I believe he tells you that right from the right get-go. from the very beginning. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the movie starts out with you just knowing that this guy is is interested in like making a buck and you know that about him and then they immediately like pump the brakes on that and they go but watch how like Elvis was something else where it like yeah. also like entranced him so the whole like visage of Elvis being like larger than life and and like having these magical performance it's like the very one of the very first things you see and that landed so well where I was like, okay. I, I didn't have a ton of expectations going into it. Admittedly, uh, I was on a work trip. We were in a record we were doing recordings in Nashville and my wife, you know, came along on that trip and we had uh we stayed I think two days extra just to, you know, experience the city. Uh, and and Chris alluded to earlier, I'm moving. I'm my wife and I are actually moving to Nashville area to expand production for our company here. So still working here, still Chris's coworker, but we're expanding to get access to a different, a, a larger pool of musicians, a larger pool of in, engineers, a larger pool of studios, and we're also upgrading here. So that's a lot of cool things. But I, I, for Ren and I, my wife Ren, it was very much like, hey, we're in Tennessee. Should we go see the Elvis movie? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, duh. And so, I mean, that was pretty much the whole conversation about it. There wasn't really a much of a beforehand of like, oh, we got to go see this movie. And then that scene played, and I was like, this is a great choice. I am I really mm-hmm. think I'm going to like this movie a lot. But the standout bummer and hang-up for me is just how kind of goofy Tom Hanks feels with, like, the accent and just like yeah, his yeah, portrayal yeah. of the character, like he's very cartoonish. He, and... Yeah, like, and I guess it's weird because like the movie is so stylized, mm-hmm. right? Like, visually, musically, the movie is very stylized in that they're dropping in tons of different genres, like modern contemporary pop music and hip hop music, and they're creating all of these really flashy montages of all of his music that bend and weave, and like there are visual things that are like almost Alice in Wonderland-esque that are happening. But at the same time, Elvis feels so real, right? Like mm-hmm. the characters feel so real except for Tom Hanks. Tom yeah. Hanks is the only one that kind of personifies like the cartoonish element you know, of all is, the other stories. This like, is interesting because um, all I had talked to you previously was I told you I saw it and I loved it. And you said, 
yeah, me too, except Tom Hanks. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, me too. That was pretty much our conversation. And then you said, pin this. it. We'll talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I actually mentioned to Jeremy this week that I'd seen it. And, you know, Jeremy and I, like, we share a love of horror movies, like, as in general. But aside from that, our tastes just are too in everything, right? Yeah. And even the movies that we both love, I swear we love them for, like, different reasons, you know? <laughs> and so... As I tell him this, I'm tell I, I gave him the rundown. I said I saw the Elvis movie, and here's what I think about it. And he was one shocked that he thought I was gonna hate it. Yeah. He thought I'd hate the the style. And two, I'll be I'll be honest with you, Chris. What? I also thought you wouldn't like it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's I, funny. Surprised to hear initially that you loved it. Uh, part of it is, I have always been, I I would not say I'm a huge Elvis fan. I don't own an Elvis CD, but we did a show. When I started working here, one of the first shows we did was called All Shook Up, which is a jukebox musical of well, of Elvis music. So the the play itself has nothing to do with Elvis. But it's but all they, Elvis music. It, yeah, it's it's like Mamma Mia, right? It's ABBA's music, but it's not about ABBA. Yeah. It's just so um, that introduced me to a lot of songs I didn't know by Elvis, and kind of I found that uh, I can be extremely moved by Elvis music. In the right moments, right? And a movie kind of sets you up emotionally to be moved by the music. So it was done really well. But yeah, he was surprised. He and I, for once, he, he I listed my three issues. He said exactly the same reaction. Loved it. Didn't like Tom Hanks. Didn't like the the weird musical uh, shoe-ins like the Moan Singer. Mm-hmm. And thought it was too long. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, a really good movie. Yep. So that's funny. We're like, I don't know if we've all ever been in agreement so much about it. I don't know if we ever have either. Yeah. Because we do end up talking a lot. uh, And there's very rare occasions where all three of us feel the same way about something. Yeah. Because those are my, like, I didn't mind the. Yeah, you don't mind the. But it's not that I, it's not even necessarily that I liked them. I was pretty indifferent to them. Well, Um, like, I mean, obviously they didn't ruin the movie for me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like, and they actually take up a very small chunk of the music. Yeah. So even though to me it was jarring and kind of took me out of it for a moment, it's only a moment. Well, there, I mean, honestly, it feels like uh, – uh, yeah, yeah, I totally get it. Here's what, here, And I agree. Here's why I'm surprised by the Elvis biopic. There are other musical biopics that will have come out recently that I would have thought for sure I would have loved. Uh-huh. And – they missed the mark for me. Okay, so I can list four. Four come to mind. Let's talk about them. And it turns out the two that I like the most are the ones that are the least grounded in, like, staunch reality. So I'll list the four. There's uh, Elvis, right? There's yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. There's um, Aretha. Man. Oh, Aretha. Okay. And Rocket Man. There's a Whitney Houston one out there, but for reasons I'm about to explain— <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. Okay. But if you were to list, uh, like, a top ten list of my favorite artists, Elvis is not on the list, but Elton John definitely is. Whitney Houston definitely is. Freddie Mercury and Queen is in, like, the top three. Aretha Franklin is in, like, maybe, like, the list is, like, we just, like, spit it out right now. It'd be James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Tower of Power, like... (laughs) Queen, definitely. Like, we're talking yeah, yeah. 
It's like they announce a Queen biopic, and I'm like, oh, sweet. And they're like, you know, and Brian May's involved, and they're making it. And as a Queen fan, you're like, oh, okay. Because, like, sometimes that's a great thing, and sometimes that's a bad thing. Um, just that kind of involvement. So mm. I've seen, of the five I've listed, I've seen the four. I've seen four of them. I haven't watched the Whitney Houston one. So go see Bohemian Rhapsody. And it, I mean, my impression of it, it was so like literal in that it's about music but there's not a lot of music in it right it's about a band it's about a musician but didn't feel like there's a lot of music in it but there there actually is there's a ton there's a ton of archival recordings there's a ton of uh uh there's there's a there's a musician who like um sounds so close to Freddie Mercury and is well known for sounding like Freddie Mercury that he came in and like helped bridge the gap between archival stuff and recordings and like in the same way that I had all this like nerdy audio stuff that I just loved about Elvis those things did not land nearly as well and I I just feel like it had a very real like drab kind of approach to it Freddie yeah. Mercury is this person who publicly was very very flamboyant and and like an amazing top line front man for a band who in his private life was like very you know like squirrely and 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 private and introverted and i don't know so that okay. was that just i i wanted to love it i really wanted to love it and it was kind of like yeah i was swinging and a miss and um same thing with yet. same thing with the aretha franklin movie if 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 we're talking about like they're making a Aretha Franklin biopic. And you're like, oh, no, who's going to play Aretha Franklin? They're like, Jennifer Hudson. You're like, it's going to be incredible. My dreams are coming true. And then I went to see it, and it's like, it just kind of fell flat. And then I saw Ro and then you see Rocket Man, and you see Elvis. And Rocket Man has, like, full breakdown dance sequences. The fourth wall is broken. Same thing. We're like, it's driven by the music. The music is the driving force behind it. Elvis and... And Elton John in their own movies are surrounded by things that seem like ethereal and like not necessarily even fully grounded in reality. And the result is that they as characters feel very believable, very grounded. You can relate to them immediately. And I, that's why I'm not I haven't even seen the Whitney Houston docu uh, uh, just, biopic yet, because like, well, I just don't want my heart to be broken about yeah. it. I haven't seen those. But there's a couple others. I so I have nothing's going to be biopics are they're they're in my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the best. Top, right, the top top that's of the, the list. Best. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there are more. I'm forgetting. Those are just the ones that have, like have been very recent. But yeah, uh, allow me to spew some of my thoughts on biopics. Yeah, <laughs> and Go then on. I've got a question for you. Go for it. But uh, well, I loved Elvis. Obviously, I didn't see those two. I saw the Dirt. Motley Crue, The Dirt. Oh, I yeah. really enjoyed The Dirt. Yeah, I don't. I mean, that's kind of not focused on an individual, more of a band. Uh, but that that movie does an amazing job because it personifies like the mystique of that band so well. Well, right? and it was. Here's the thing with The Dirt. It gave you what you were expecting. Yeah. You, it's like, dude, this is going to be raunchy and just. It's yeah. Motley Crue. And it delivered, man, and it was yeah. fun. Like we loved it. And then there's total ownership over what it was meant to be. Yeah. Like it doesn't pull punches. It just shows. It shows you go like it's about Motley Crue, so it's going to be pretty wild, pretty crazy. And it's exactly that. And you're like, this is great. Yeah. If you went hoping for something tame and like you know thoughtful, 
Like, <laughs> you chose the wrong movie. Yeah. But I, a lot of people loved this one, and I, I didn't, is uh, the Johnny Cash one. Uh, oh, Walk okay. The Line. I do really, I do really like Walk the Line. Most people do. Um, I, I don't. And it is much like it's been a lot. What you like just described since I've of seen the, it though. What you just the way you just described Bohemian Rhapsody is how I felt about. It. Ah, okay. I wanted more music. There probably is a lot of music in that movie, but to me it was very. I don't remember the music so much. You know, yeah. yeah I remember just a lot of long scenes. Um, it was very focused on a period of his life, and the guy lived a long life and. You know, I, I, I kind of wanted more. I Like Elvis, granted Elvis didn't live as long as Johnny Cash, no. but you went through his whole life in that movie, right? Like, and I don't think it has to be that way. You know, Johnny Cash was more magnified, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know. It didn't land with me. It, going farther back, uh, The Doors, the movie The Doors ah. is an interesting one. I don't yeah. really like it very much. Yeah, I got you. I've um, seen that one as well. I, I haven't seen The Doors in so long that I don't really – couldn't tell you why I didn't like it very much. But uh, but the Elvis one by far is the one I, I like the so most. So I guess uh, I'm just thinking this through. Like there's so much more – okay. So what I think – what I think is the thing is like Bohemian Rhapsody had like – in the studio for a little bit, montage things, now we're going to record an album, right? Mm-hmm. And then it just feels like there's almost shot-for-shot recreations of, like, live performances. Yeah. And I think, I mean, hearing me talk about it, I'm saying I want I want more music, or I, I, the music is the driving force. What does that mean? Like, you would think, okay, so they're recreating Queen at Live Aid, right? Yeah. That's cool, but... You can also just watch Queen like at Live Aid, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's it's weird. I feel like it may be conf- I, I may be even like not representing it very well because like no, I know because uh, there, there probably is. There's a I I suspect there's probably a lot of music by all those artists in all those movies, but in Rocket Man and in Elvis, the two that I think nail it, the the music serves as like an integral part of the storytelling. Yes. As a and it's both yes. it's both in performance and in soundtrack and in transition music. Where in other in these other movies, it feels like it's there's like a score and a soundtrack to the movie, and that stands separate from now the band's gonna perform live at Live Aid or maybe like no, the, I that's mean, exactly it. that's that's it's I would say it's the same with Johnny Cash. What what makes Elvis unique? I would say and I haven't seen the Elton John one, but Elvis has almost no time without music. Yeah. Like, it is constantly moving and constantly being driven by that music. And also, it also recre- it recreates live performances, shot for yeah. shot. But when they come, I-, I felt like they did a good job of when to do that and when to take liberty mm-hmm. to suit the-, the movie. So, I have a question for you. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, okay, do you know that Martin Scorsese has a planned Grateful Dead movie? <laughs> no, I had no idea. Oh, really? Dude. How hey, long planned? Because Martin me... Scorsese is notorious for like having a, a plan for like 30 years. Well, here's years. the thing. He announced it. It was announced like two years ago, and I looked it up in anticipation of this conversation, and there's nothing new. Everything is from 2021. Yeah, but you're not going to see that for a really long time. Cause I know. Well, and it, I'm it, okay the with for that. His part. movies are decades long. I'm usually. not sure I want it to happen. <laughs> Up to this point, I've said I don't really want this to happen. <laughs> but now, after seeing Elvis, I'm like, 
Man, if they did a Grateful Dead movie right. I can't ooh. believe we're living in a world where Chris wants Baz Luhrmann to make a Grateful Dead style movie. <laughs> Do you that, know who's going to play Jerry? That feels so insane. Who's Baz Luhrmann? Was he's he... the guy who made the Elvis movie. Oh, okay. But okay. like, let yeah. me just list you the other movies he's made. I guess what I'm saying, uh, is, what I'm saying is okay, that like, let's not get too carried away here. I know. I have to see this through though because you're you're, <laughs> you're stuck in it now. Well, while you're looking that up, do you know who was gonna, well, who is slated to play Jerry Garcia? No, Jonah Hill. Oh, interesting. Uh, that was my reaction, but a little even less enthused. I was like, oh. I really like Jonah Hill and a lot of the dramatic roles he has been doing, but I don't. I'm not a staunch Grateful Dead guy either. I'm not a fan of him from what I have seen. I haven't seen much of him, but <laughs> Okay. Here's the thing though. Like, Jerry Garcia was actually a really witty, funny dude. And so if I always think of Jonah Hill, isn't he a comedian? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I gotcha. Maybe I never thought he was funny, but like maybe if he can pull off the wit of Jerry. <laughs> okay, what what do you got for okay. me here? <laughs> so just for the record, let the record show that Chris has staunchly <laughs> said that he really, really, really wants Baz Luhrmann to make okay. a Grateful Dead Staunchly, he says. And that's the, that's the only scenario where he could see it happening. So you, he made Elvis. Do you know of any of the other movies he's made? No, you're, this is the first I've ever heard his name. The Great Gatsby? Uh, not, have, <laughs> let's just say... Okay. Uh, remember that game I played with you, Like It, Love It, or Hate It? Australia? Or wait... I'm going to say hate it. I've, I haven't seen either of these yeah. movies. I, I'm going to go with We'll get it. to some things maybe you've seen. Moulin Rouge? Never saw it. Yeah. So I hate it. Romeo and Juliet? Hate it. Never like saw it. Like Leonardo, with Leonardo DiCaprio? I've never seen yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen a single one of these movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I get what you're saying. I'm making fun, but I, I totally no. get what you're saying. I agree with you. Uh, uh, I've seen a lot of these other movies. I do like them. Yeah. But they didn't it's land in the same style. way that that I felt like the Elvis movie like landed for me. And I do think we spent a lot of time talking about how great the choices were in terms of filmmaking, but I also think one of the huge defining factors of it is I think that Andrew Butler was really awesome yeah, as yeah. Elvis. Like Absolutely. The he cast, was great. I think the casting choices across the board, with the exception with, of Tom yeah, Hanks, yeah. were so good. You didn't know he'd be the dead weight. But, yeah. Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Uh, okay. Here's the, Martin Scorsese though. I do like his movies. Yeah, uh, some of them anyway. I, I, but I, I worried that Martin Scorsese. Oh wait, no. Okay, no. Martin Scorsese can be really tongue in cheek a lot of times. Yeah, well, as you well, say, like, he's so gritty. That's what yeah. I'm like. Is this going to be a really dark? Because he did a Grateful Dead documentary. I guess I haven't mm. seen it. It's sitting on. I didn't know that. It's sitting on a queue. It's it's on Amazon. Okay. And uh, I I'm I really need to see it. I've heard it's incredibly good, but dark. Because mm. I as I mean, they, they're, Jerry Garcia is a is a pretty dark human being in many ways. Right. Um, I think that that uh, I'd be really interested. I, I Martin Scorsese making a movie about the Grateful Dead might be the most interested I'll have ever been in the Grateful Dead. Oh yeah, you're gonna want to see it. I mean, I'm, I well from what I've been told about I'm a the ran, documentary, I'm a random pick and choose guy with Grateful Dead. I have songs that I really like, but I I have no idea when they were written. In their their history as a band, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm a casual listener who really enjoys the things that I like from them. But I do really like They're Martin Scorsese. I do really like Martin Scorsese but movies. I, what I've heard about that documentary is they said whoever I was listening to talk about it, 
It might be multiple people. You don't need to be a dead fan to enjoy this documentary. It is just a thing to be seen. And they said, if you like The Godfather 2, you need to see this documentary. Okay, I mean, that sounds I like I love it's... that movie. Yeah. I love that band, and I've been too afraid to watch the documentary. <laughs> you don't want it to break your heart? Uh, well, there's not going to be much. I've read books. I, 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 Dude, man, I was so obsessed with that band for so many years. I, There's nothing that's going to be a shock to me. It's more that uh, you're going to laugh at this. What scares me about it is it's a six-part documentary, and that's a commitment. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I get <laughs> I'm it. I'm not ready to put a ring on that finger. You okay. know what I mean? Like, so let me ask you this. I have so many questions. Uh, so Elvis still lands for you, and you uh-huh. like it. And yeah. you, it sounds like you loved it. Yeah, I You did. said you loved it. I did. The yeah. three caveat problems you've listed, uh-huh. if those three things existed <laughs> in... A Grateful Dead. So yeah. let's uh, let's oh, let's just let's, say let's, let's say it down. let's say it's comparable uh-huh. quality. Okay, right. And We're it's like, driven by the music. It's driven by the music. Yeah. And it's it's checking all the boxes that Elvis checked for you. Oh, but there's an interlude where thing. there's a really depressed, sad sounding girl who's doing a whisper drama. Oh, she comes in and starts singing Ripple or something. Of Ripple, and, yes, exactly. Uh, and then you know, smash cut to. Jerry Garcia and band are getting out of their van to load their wall of sound equipment in, and they're like slow mo- motion, like walking to like some real slamming hip hop beat. Do those things in that movie now ruin it for you? Because I know the Grateful Dead for you are the Grand Poopas. Okay. They're on a pedestal. If I'm, if I'm in the theater, I'm grinding my teeth and I'm like muttering to myself and <laughs> and like pouting. Your and heart's just, breaking. Yeah, and I'm I'm like like making mental notes to go off about when it's over. If I'm in my house when I see this, I'm screaming at the television. Okay. I'm like So that's the point yeah. I'm making. And then in to Elvis, top it off, if you have less like, lower expectations uh, and you're not a fan, those things I think are easier to shrug off. But would yeah, those yeah. be like an affront that would disturb you if it were in a Grateful Dead movie? I mean if the movie was still as good as Elvis, I'd be able to get over it. But okay. like but yeah, I mean and let's say uh I don't know Who's who's a let's there say are... Dan Aykroyd it, uh, <laughs> decides like he's gonna play like Robert Hunter, you know the Grateful Dead's lyricist, and he's just awful, right? Like, <laughs> but here's the thing: when you say that, that makes me want to watch it more. Like, if you say Dan Aykroyd's gonna be in a Grateful Dead movie directed by Martin Scorsese, we're making a list of make that make you know me what? really want to watch Parker, it. Parker, I think I accidentally just pitched. Pitch, uh, predicted a casting choice because do you know that he's a deadhead yeah martin we know you're listening and we dan Aykroyd. <laughs> we endorse dan's cast dan Aykroyd. uh yeah there's like a famous concert they did uh, for new year's eve 1978 and the blues brothers opened for them oh, i love that they they spent some time they they hung out with the dead i think they're buds so i could totally see them casting dan Aykroyd to play some side character but uh i would my love point that. but well, I would if he was good, but if he yeah. comes in like Tom Hanks, yeah, and, I got gotcha. you. Or I, you know, I think they would cast him as Bill Graham, mm. and I don't know. And then also, would they? I would hope they would do um, the thirty-year history of the Grateful Dead. No, very little before and very little after, if any. I I want the Grateful Dead, not you know, and I want it to move. I don't want to spend seventy percent of the movie. In the '60s, because everything everybody thinks the most interesting thing about the Grateful Dead is acid, right? Like, mm-hmm. I want to not be in the '60s the whole time. I want a lot of '80s, '90s, '70s Grateful Dead, where it was really happening musically. Yeah. You know? And um, anyway, yeah, it would break my heart though if all of a sudden, 
I don't know though, man. It could also just make me laugh. If I, if, if if I'm getting like a slow squad walk, if done of, of well, the... it can land. I I, yeah. I I get what you're saying because here's the thing: Martin Scorsese is not one to like not do that. He very well could do something like that. Yeah, it'll get it'll be bad. I just anyway, all right. Well, if I, that ever happens, <clears throat> I want to. I I'll complicate it. I'll go. I want to go with you to the theater, and okay. the tickets on me. Oh, I love this. To complicate your emotions even more. Because now you're in the theater, but you're not paying for it. So you got no skin in the game, right? It's just, <laughs> you know it's what I just mean? reaction. Just pure, pure, unfiltered either enjoyment or loathing. No okay. guilt associated around like the $10 ticket. I love it. Um, I'll fly back for it. So I'm, 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 I'm anticipating the movie eagerly, but afraid to right i think how old is martin scorsese i don't know he's Isn't gotta be like 100 in his years 80s old right? or something like that so yeah it's gotta happen quick i know i know i hope this isn't like a he dies somebody else takes over and it just turns into this hot mess yeah i gotta see how old martin scorsese is i was thinking about this though parker okay if i could choose anybody for them to make a one of these movies on do you know who i'd choose who waylon jennings really oh yeah okay I think Waylon Jennings would be the perfect. He's eighty. Who Scorsese? Yeah, <laughs> sorry, he's that eighty. Was okay, he's, he's, he's exactly eighty. <laughs> that was, that was good. I want to see a Waylon Jennings movie. Yeah. In the style of this Elvis movie, I want it to be driven by the music. It would have. He had an interesting life, interesting person, yeah. amazing music, maybe even a little bit of a lo- an elusive dude, right? Like. Yeah. I I Waylon Jennings is I I have a special special love for him and his yeah. music. And then I would love the appearances of Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson. Yeah. You know, and uh all these other but but centered around Waylon, but I think what's going to happen is Willie Nelson's going to die maybe one day and then they'll make a Willie Nelson movie and you'll get the little appearance from Waylon. <clears throat> and that'll pre- that'll be cool too. But I, if I could choose one it'd be Waylon Jennings. Okay. Who, who would yours be if you could, if if it was done well? You could say just automatically it's done well. Well, you said you said what would my top of the list be, and I completely blanked on this because I I've almost compartmentalized this movie separate because it may already exist. Okay. So one of the biopics that I've left out because I absolutely think it's amazing is Get Up, the James Brown biopic. Oh, I don't. I forgot you need that to, one. Okay, so the things that you like about Elvis, you will like about this movie. Okay. And. Here's the best part. It's so relevant to this conversation because the the like take Tom Hanks character in Elvis and make him like a real mensch who's there to help and cast him with De- by Dan Aykroyd and that's get up. <laughs> right? So like you should definitely watch Get Up. If you liked Elvis, you'll probably like Elvis more, but the James Brown biopic is exceptionally done for all the reasons that we're talking about it's a it's so much about the music it's about his process it it ebbs and flows there's like really impressive archival recreations of some of his performances but they kind of break the fourth wall and they tell the story they remove themselves in that way really 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 great so that aside because it already exists who would i choose for them to make a biopic of honestly (laughs) elton john would be another one but (laughs) Okay. There's one that comes to mind that I have a sense of dread about okay. them making. All right, let's hear it. A David Bowie biopic. Oh. Done well would make me incredibly happy. 
Really? Like a David Bowie biopic done with the styling choices that was made in Elvis would in Rocket Man, maybe even more leaning towards Rocket Man in this case, would be amazing. I just don't know who you cast as David Bowie, <laughs> right? Like and you'd have so many awesome cameos in that. But the thing is, similar to Rocket Man, in order to make that movie good, you kind of have to dig into the dark stuff, right? Like you've got David Bowie, you've got the Ziggy Stardust era, you've got like the Baron era. Like there's a lot of like David Bowie mysticism that's so interesting, but like for a while he was like on a cocaine and milk diet almost exclusively. He almost died from it. He weighed like right. 85 pounds. Like there's drug addiction, there's all this other stuff that would be like dark that is really compelling to his life. Mhm. Mm uh that Yeah, well you should get that be addressed. With the, I get it. That that's same with Waylon Jennings. Yeah. yeah. You have a massive cocaine period. Yeah. <laughs> and and getting busted, you yeah. know, like in the studio and flushing like $70,000 of cocaine down the toilet, yeah. things like that, you know, like it can make for a compelling movie. But see, the Johnny Cash movie did some of that. It hit it hard and took me away from the music. Yeah, I gotcha. And also, uh, you know, Johnny Cash, like he got his crap together, yeah. which they did not really show so much, if yeah. I remember, you know, but... Well, and and Rocket Man does a really. I I don't know if you've seen Rocket Man. I don't know I if, how much of a Elton John fan you are. It maybe <sighs> it may be similar to like Elvis, but if you liked Elvis, you should check out Rocket Man. I've, I here's my Rocket I'm Man. I'm not an Elton fan, but I saw him in concert once, and it was really really good. Yeah, <laughs> like really good. So another thing that I think that sets these movies apart is the people, the people they cast to be to play these characters, playing them well. Right, I think Andrew Butler played Elvis really, really well. Taron, mm -hmm. uh, Edgerton uh, playing Elton John is like incredible. It's amazing. Um, so, and and Jennifer Hudson being cast as Aretha Franklin is like the perfect casting choice in my opinion, just not utilized yeah. well. So, uh, yeah, I would I would just really love. A David Bowie biopic, and I feel like it's only a matter of time. It's like, yeah, that it, that seems inevitable to it, me. It feels like like it it writes itself. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. But anyone who would go like, okay, so Elvis was popular, Get Up was popular, Rocket was popular. Like, who else could we do? Like, I mean, it would admittedly David have a Bowie much broader draw than top, a Waylon Jennings top, top of the list. Pick, well, here's but... the thing. I think that the issue is that like, it would have a higher draw because I think there are there. I don't know if there are like casual listening fans of Waylon Jennings like there are of That's David Bowie. That's what I mean. David Bowie's more far reaching. So Waylon's, I feel like you know. a really true representative biopic of David Bowie would be kind of risky because there's a lot of people walking <laughs> into it who like listen to less dance and fame and love those songs, not realizing like everything else in his discography. Like his, his, his history of songwriting is like so unique and just diverse in ways that other artists just simply aren't. And it's because like there are phases where he like completely personifies like a different human being. So it's like a very method acting approach <laughs> to like being an artist and writing music. 
And so you've got like if you cherry pick stuff from different eras, yeah. it will be so staunchly different, like in a unique way that I think that like any fan who's a fan like any fan who like likes Ziggy Stardust but has been like just pocketed to that era would be weirded out by other stuff. Right. And I almost I want that as like a fan of like all of David Bowie. Like I I like the idea of having people who are like, oh, I like David Bowie, going to the movie theater and be like, what the hell is this? You know, like, I, that's the way that I would want them. I would want them to make a movie like that, where people who have, like, a general are familiarity. You, and your, your fear is they would avoid that? And my fear is they would avoid that. Yeah. My fear is that, like, they would take a more play-it-safe approach, like they did in Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, the yeah, casting yeah. for Freddie in that movie, Rami Malek is incredible, too. But, like, the depth of the character is limited by them kind of, like, not going there. Same thing with Aretha Franklin. There's, like, a history, a whole bunch of stuff that's, like, pretty well known or known well enough for either a PG-13 rating or not wanting to portray those characters in that way. Like, they, they miss a mark on development in those cases to try to make it, I don't know if it's palatable or just not as, like, dark. Maybe that's not the story they're trying to tell, but that would be my fear. Yeah. But admittedly, if you do that with David Bowie, you might not have, like, it's all connected and swirls around in a way where, like, there might not be much of a movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I also would love, but they would never make it, a really, really awesome and good Prince biopic. Prince would be an awesome character. Why don't you think they'd make it? What's that? Why wouldn't they make it? Why don't? Well, his estate and his family would like really never like. Oh, I see those kind of. Comp- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. that's that's true. Yeah, like I think from a logistic standpoint, they just wouldn't make it. But like, man, Prince is such an interesting case because like, he's like he's like a full fledged pop star, but he is an absolute monster musician and songwriter, mm-hmm. like absolutely killer, killing guitar player. That is maybe not seen as much by people who are familiar with, you know, like Purple Rain, right? You got Purple Rain is really popular. Kiss is like his most popular song ever. Like that's a fully entrenched in like pop music as it should be. But yeah. it doesn't really demonstrate he, he is a how absolutely killer his musicianship is. Like like Yeah, I, I I'll give you that. I mean and he is a great guitar player. Yeah. I, I can't I've never been a fan. <laughs> no, no, I get it. That doesn't but, that doesn't surprise me at all either. But um <clears throat> but I, can, I, I would love a Prince biopic, but again, yeah, I, I don't think I could see that being a very compelling movie though. Yeah. Do you, do you know who I think I think it's too late because I think he's too old, but who would have been the perfect casting for Waylon? Who? Josh Brolin. Oh yeah. I think Josh totally. Brolin could have just absolutely nailed Waylon Jennings. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I wouldn't have thought of that, but I can see it. I've put a lot of thought into this, man. I, I've got the movie made in my head. I just, I just need a crew and. In another life, you're a casting director. You got it all yeah, ready to go. Yeah. Um, I'm one more question, mm-hmm. and we'll wrap it up. I know you're not a Super Bowl watcher, type. Right. Right. Like, right. Are you going to a Super Bowl party this week? No. People listening are going to be like, Super Bowl? That was like two months ago by the time I edit. Here's how much I'm not out, a but... Super Bowl fan. Uh-huh. Didn't even know it's this weekend. Well, it's this weekend. Yeah. Well, I'm going to my brother-in-law's house. 
bugged me a little bit. Like, hey, why don't you bring some of that deer over, you know? like and uh, So I thought I'd have a little fun with this, and I thought I would pl- uh, do something with the heart. Okay. And uh, But I got one deer heart, okay? okay. An odd and, thing to just say. <laughs> in a guitar music podcast. <laughs> That's a joke. I love it. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I, get, I, I no, no, no. I'm trying it, to think of how to follow it, it up. It's a joke. I love it. I'm trying to decide if this needs backstory or if we're just going to go with it. We're just going to go with it. So Yeah, yeah. It's better served with no context. Yeah, I like this heart. Should I serve it with no context like, or should I? You know, how should I serve this dear Do heart? you think, I'm thinking about doing like battered and deep fried little strips of deer heart uh-huh. with like a blooming onion dipping sauce. Yeah. And then we'll probably, with that, have like little Caesar's pizza at my brother-in-law's house. Do you think this is an appropriate um, compliment to pizza or is it going to outshine the pizza? Or is it absurd to show up with a deer heart and expect other people to eat it? I have so many He's answers not squeamish. Uh, First, but my immediate response. What? This is the most Chris Hales way to approach this. <laughs> hey, why don't you bring some of that deer to the... And you go, yep, we're going to deep fry a heart. No, nope. So <laughs> absolutely you should do that. 100% you should do that. Yes, because that's totally on brand for you, right? Yeah, yeah. And whether it pairs well with a Little Caesar pizza, who cares? Because here's the other truth. You could deep fry my phone and I'll eat it. And I will love it. I know, right? right? That's what, well. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you're gonna bloom an onion, a deer heart. That sounds awesome, right? And I would never have like said, deer heart sounds great. Let's do it. So I think you should definitely do this. And if it if it outshines the little Caesars, what a low it's bar! It's not man. so much that it's going outshine. To. Outshine was the not the right word. It's it. Does this food jive with little Caesars? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, just do it. Yeah. Well, I've already made that decision. Yeah, I'm if you're just, going I'm to a Super Bowl a, party just, for a curated jive, like for food, it's all it's just not it's a meant party. to be variety. It's not even a party. It's like my family is going to her brother's house, ah, and okay. I think it might just be him. That I, essentially, his wife and kid are like going somewhere that day, and he's like, "Well, I want to watch the Super Bowl." So he calls us and he's like, "You guys want to come over?" Yeah. We're like, "Sure." All right. Okay. What are we doing for dinner? And I'm like, "Dear heart." Question. But, uh, you know how th- chewy is deer heart? It's uh, it depends on how it's cooked. It's, gotcha. It's kind of. I mean, it's different than like a steak. Yeah. But Texture if you, wise, but I wouldn't if, call if it. If you slice it thin, yeah, and you fry kinda, it. That yeah, should yeah. be really good. I mean, you can, like you said, you can eat your phone fried and mm-hmm, it'll be good. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm, my thoughts. Mm-hmm. That sounds yeah. awesome. You should definitely do that. If I showed up to your house to watch like the USDGC with deer heart. Would you be like? I would love it. Sweet. Okay. I, oh yeah, totally. I would totally right. eat it. Yeah. And I would love how how mortified my wife would be. Do you know what I? My have... wife Ren is very squeamish about that. Just like that, and by that I mean like just how meat is cooked and prepared. She has a lot of trauma from her grow from her like family. Oh, that would be fun. So you bringing like a heart anywhere to Ren would bring me so much joy because I could just I could see her. Well. The problem is, we're, not the problem, but we're close enough now that she wouldn't hold back. She'd freak out and be like, ah! But yeah. if, if, like, we weren't as familiar, <sighs> she'd, like, put on a happy face and, like, try. <laughs> oh, man. I, I wish and this would have happened like, years that's, ago. Okay, so if your wife is there, you know, if Aaron is there, because Ren doesn't know Aaron as well as you, maybe Ren would do that. No, here's the thing. Ren also just wears it on her sleeve. Yeah, I don't see her yeah. holding back. 
Yeah, I got to tell you something. It's not going to happen now, but mm-hmm. I had thought about doing You know how we occasionally like go to Jeremy's house for a movie night? Mm-hmm. He'll invite us over. Well, I thought about showing up one night with like, I thought a good use of some of these um, organs. I'd like, how fun would it be to show up with a deer liver, some deer heart, and if we're feeling really brave, uh, some sliced testicle that's been like fried in butter. Now, I've right. never eaten that, but I watched a guy do it on TV and I was like, kind of looks good. Yeah. But I don't know that I could do it. I don't know that I could do it. But I wanted to show it. And then, and then some like good like backstrap, right? Like the, the cream of the crop meat, okay? Yeah. I thought it'd be fun to show up with a platter, unlabeled, and just label um, like, you know, this is delicious. Um, this is, I'm brave. Yeah. This one, I'll try anything once. Yeah. You know, yeah. and. You know, and see what I could get uh, Jeremy, Jer- to Jeremy to eat, and I realized nothing. He wouldn't even touch like, like the backstrap. Like he would absolutely not touch it. So then yeah. I just was like, never mind. That wouldn't be fun. That'd be lame. Yeah. <laughs> I love that plan though. Yeah. I I love you. It just I can just see it in my head. You trying to be like, hello, sir. I've brought you your thinly sliced, <laughs> pan seared, butterfried testicles for your enjoyment. <laughs> As like a housewarming gift. Thank you for having us over for this yeah, movie yeah. night. I would love that. We've brought brought good cheer. I think that'd be fun. We should do that because I'll try everything. And then I will make fun of my wife until she tries everything. And she'll hate it. And that will be very enjoyable and fun to watch. Yeah, I would enjoy it. Uh, although I don't know that I myself <laughs> could do the, the testicle. Really? I'll tell you what, man. I've never once had it, it but once I try it's, it. Once it's sliced and like frying in a pan, it, it no longer looks like what it is. Yeah. And so it, it, it looks like a piece of fat. Yeah. It looks like bacon. Like it looks like a fatty piece of bacon. And well, like, that's what I'm saying. Mm. In that way, I would try it. Yeah, I think I would But too. like if we're talking about survival, like the show Survivor where like <laughs> here's a bowl, right, of just two straight off the deer testicles. You have 30 seconds, you know. Uh-huh. I think that would be very challenging. But you tell me you're going to slice it thin and, you know, pan sear it in butter? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, it'll be like crispy. You yep. know, it'll be like, well, not, it'll have a chart outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a tender. A juicy. <laughs> Never mind. Exactly. <laughs> no, I got you. I got you. Anyway. Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to show up with some deep fried heart and be like, look, man, you asked. Let me know how it goes. Try some deer. Yeah. Yep, let me know how it goes. I will. I will. All right, man. Thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, it was a blast. Much appreciated. I know uh, it's a good time, but it's also a couple hours of your time. So No. I appreciate totally, it. Totally, totally love it. It's going to take me like a month to trim this down and get it out. <laughs> so they're going to be like, what are you talking about the Super Bowl? It's July. You yeah. Know, but <laughs> whatever. And then three months from now, you'll be able to give a follow-up on how your heart uh, oh yeah, yeah. Work. yeah. That'll be the following episode. <laughs> so like, I mean, I get emails, you know, and I read them, but often the email is usually a month old by the time I read it. Right. <laughs> and it always feels a little weird. But I only put the show out once a month, so someone will like hear it, respond to it right away. Yeah. And then by the time I read it on the show, I'm like, does this still work? They're talking about Christmas, and it's you know like. But it does. Yeah. It does. Yep, cool, man. Thanks for having me on. Always yeah. a blast. Thank you.